just a caveat. Many of you already know this, but not everyone, I don't believe, understands this. But for some that may not realize it, there's nothing in the Bible that shows that Jesus instituted what we call Easter. So most of you are here, you already know this, but many in the world who profess Christianity may not realize because this is a practice, a tradition in particular in westernized culture, we, Julian versus Gregorian calendar about when is the, the Passover and what have you. But, but this is something that's taken place over a number of centuries and so many just forget Nothing was instituted. We can see the Passover uh, meal that Jesus instituted in what we now call the Lord's Supper, the communion. And you have people that, that will do this from time to time. We do it every time we come together each week. And we can read that. Jesus said in Luke 22, verse 19, with regard to that meal that we partook of this morning, do this in remembrance of me. So we have very explicit information about this Lord's Supper, this communion that we partake of all the time. So the question is, why preach on something that we don't have a divine directive per se? Well, the answer, in my opinion, is very obvious. This subject of the resurrection, is it limited to 51 weeks out of the year? No, it's not. It's appropriate every time of the year. Any day of the year for that matter. So that's one reason that, it, that we have including a time in which so many in the world have a mindset with regard to the resurrection. I, I remember before I was a Christian, uh, I was a college student in Nebraska. And I remember this one family, they work for, um, well, they own a florist, a florist shop. And I don't know of any other time because I only visited them a few times during the year. But I remember the one time, um, whether it would be Mother's Day or Easter, that they would actually send flowers to this church, and then they would have that service. And I remember growing up, and the only time I think I remember my mom taking us children going to a, some kind of a service would be some kind of a quote-unquote midnight mass with the Catholic Church. Um, remember doing that. And I think maybe on Easter, but I would stay home. Because I didn't go to a, quote unquote, I didn't go to church. But she would take my sisters. And so that was the mindset that I have growing up. It was just this once in a blue moon type mindset. And I'm not so surprised that that happens throughout the year. That there are special occasions that take place. But this is one of those that people are saying, you know, the Lord is on my heart, on my mind. And, and I want to go find a church that's going to worship him. And they have this thought however little or great about Jesus Christ and about his resurrection. And we're told, as the Apostle Paul uses himself as an example in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that we need to be all things to all men, right? He says, to those who are under the law, I spoke to one as under the law. To those who are free, I spoke to them as free. To those who are slaves, and so on and so forth. And what I'm saying is that when you preach the gospel... You preach where people are at because you make a connection to them. I've known of churches that would actually shy away from this very day because, well, I don't want to look like what the rest of the world looks like. Well, the flip side is we don't preach out of the fear for what would be judged by others. 
We preach out of love to save souls. Truth has no boundary on when it is or is not proclaimed. It's always proclaimed. And I'm sharing with you, brethren, from that standpoint, because there are times in which we feel like, well, for instance, um, I forget the song that we, that we had sung, and it's in December, but it's like, <gasps> you know, it's about baby Jesus, and guess what? We don't know when his birth is. Well, I talked to a lot of people in this world professing to be Christians. They said, well, we don't know when his birth is. You know what? That song is good throughout the whole year, but I never hear it at any other time of the year as well. But we get shocked if we sing it at that time. The truth is still the truth. Anytime. Brethren, you should be bold about that. Not for the sake of the flesh, if you will, as far as, well, we're going to do it because we can, we have the liberty. That's the worst reason for doing so. But to save souls are very appropriate. In Matthew chapter 11, in fact, Jesus was saying to the Pharisees who basically said, well, when John the Baptist came around, look at this guy, he's a drunkard. Jesus comes around, he has a demon. I mean, here's Jesus doing things in the name of God, by God's authority, and they're looking at every fault they can find in him. Jesus uses the passage in Matthew 11, verse 17 through 19 about how, you know, he quotes from this text where he says, you know, we as the children played the flute for you. You didn't even dance. I mean, the time of dancing is when we play the flute for you. And you know, we played this other instrument of when you should be mourning. You didn't mourn. It's very appropriate Brethren, at times like this, I think, when the mind is already set at this time, to think about the resurrection of Christ. Next year, I may not preach on the resurrection on this day. I didn't last year, but I did two years ago. But I want you to know these things, that the purpose of any sermon is to reach souls where they're at. That's very appropriate. And just for the sake of brethren knowing this, anyone who is here this morning came this morning that would otherwise not be here. Raise your hand if you're here. One person, see, at least you admit, thank you for admitting that. There's always someone from the community that will come during these kinds of moments. What a great opportunity to share the gospel during a time like this. That's the intention. Well, with that in mind, I want us to look at, at these passages about this subject matter that has this whole world upside down, and that is the resurrection of Christ. I mean, you have atheists, you have agnostics, you have people that may be quote-unquote religious, but not spiritually minded, or those who are spirituals, all kinds of people, and at times like this, the discussion is raised about the resurrection. And even Brad had made some points along these lines with regard to the resurrection, and what I'm sharing with you are some very simple things, I'm not going to get into heavy, deep stuff here, but some very fundamental truths with regard to to the resurrection you see there was this belief by people hundreds of years if not longer especially if you try and date where job is in world history that had this belief in a bodily resurrection so imagine this because by the time you get to the first century we can read in the gospel of matthew matthew chapter 22 there's a group of people 
who were Jews, people who are children of God, who did not even believe that there was such a thing as those who would raise from the dead. Can you imagine being someone who belongs to God and not believe in a fundamental teaching as the resurrection? When I was a young Christian, and I became a Christian when I was about 21, I remember a um, Bible class teacher telling me, as she taught her Bible classes, she said, you know, the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. And I thought, well, I remember that now. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else was taught that. I'm going to guess yes. But they didn't believe. They rejected this idea of the dead being raised. And yet this was a mindset, a belief, and a conviction that many people had for centuries. Isaiah wrote of the bodily resurrection. Daniel wrote of the body resurrection. Job wrote about an expectation that he would be raised from the dead. This is an amazing thing as you go on and on. In fact, I want us to open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, which gives us about the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, we're talking about this chapter in the Bible that deals with people having a conviction of faith where they're willing to go to the grave for their faith. So in Hebrews chapter 11, example after example is given of people's faith. And then he says in verse 35 that women received their dead raised to life again. And all we have to do is go back to these passages that were written hundreds of years before Jesus even walked the earth. And it's found in 1 Kings chapter 17 as well as 2 Kings chapter 4, where there was this widow, and she's with her son. He gets sick and he dies. And the prophet comes and breathes, and this child, well, according to the scriptures, sneezes seven times, and then his eyes open up. He's alive. Someone who's dead is now alive. I can imagine the hope that it rang, not only for this woman, but for other people going, how amazing is that? His body was cold. And now this child is alive again. You can read of it over and over. But these are Old Testament passages where there was this belief system so that by the time you get to the New Testament, many children of God believed in the resurrection. So what does that mean then? What it means is that when we look at scriptures, we can see the power of God's promise that, that motivated people to do things they would otherwise not do. You ever stop and consider why Daniel, while in captivity in a foreign country, could be so bold in his faith for God? It's because he believed that he would not only pass from death into life, but that everyone else who was a believer would have that hope in them. And that's the reason why we see this great prophet going about so boldly proclaiming the word of God even before our king. The power of God's promise is found in the resurrection of the Lord's Christ that we're speaking of this morning. 
And we see a number of passages that show this. Jesus believed and he taught about this. And there are many, many Bible passages we could look at. But I want you to note some things here in the, in the New Testament scriptures. I want you to open up to Luke chapter 14 and read with me this conviction that he had, that he just accepted as truth with regard to the resurrection. In Luke chapter 14... Well, let me go to Luke 20. Luke 14, um, I messed up on. So excuse me. We'll go back to, we'll go back to this pace, uh, passage later on. Luke chapter 20. My bad. Luke chapter 20, in verse 27. Scripture says that some of the Sadducees who denied there's a resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Just like the law of Moses taught, right? Now, consider this hypothetical. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. The second took her as wife, and he died, without, uh, died childless. And the third took her, and in like manner, the seventh also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the women died also. If I can add a paraphrase into this, isn't it logical that there cannot be a resurrection? Because look at this hypothetical. Whose child, you know, who does this person belong to? And in marriage, I mean, who's this person, woman married to? If there is this bodily resurrection. Jesus answered in verse 34 and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So there was this view that Jesus had and Jesus taught with regard to this resurrection that was well understood by many except for these Sadducees. And of course, Jesus was telling this woman, saying, I am the resurrection. I'm the one that gives life from death. And after he teaches these things, we see him actually being raised from the dead. In fact, in John's gospel account, in John chapter 2 and verse 22, he recounts in hindsight the fact that Jesus died and rose on the third day. As some would preach this morning, the tomb is empty. <coughs> Think about that. The tomb is empty because the body's no longer there. It rose. And some would say, well, it's easy to hide a body. It's easy to make up a story. But this is in the first century when people could have verified the veracity, the truth of whether or not this body that actually was in this tomb, they had Roman soldiers protecting it so that nobody would be re removed. No corpse would have been moved from that location. And yet, the body wasn't there on that morning. Jesus not only promised this would happen, as many had already believed in the resurrection, but he was resurrected. That's a fact. I wasn't there to eyewitness this. You weren't there. None of us are. But history shows 
There were 500 people that were eyewitnesses. And when Paul wrote this letter to the church that was in a place called Corinth, many of the 500 were still alive that could have said, yes, I was an eyewitness. I saw this Jesus who had been killed. I saw him alive after he died. I don't know what more you want from eyewitness testimony. And it's a matter from that point forward whether people are going to accept or believe that to be true or just made up story. But we fast forward and we see that not only um, does Jesus teach this, he shows himself raised among his disciples and what have you, as was just mentioned. But here's the thing that I find very convicting to me. I want to read this quotation because this is where hope comes. In fact, when I was at the jail on Friday, Ken was with me, um, I asked the men, why do you have hope? What gives any person hope? And someone said, Jesus. I said, I know people that know the name of Jesus. That's not giving them hope. So what is it about the name of Jesus then? And then someone said, well, the cross. I said, so Jesus died, and that gives you hope. Because that to me sounds pretty depressing. You die. They knew where I was going. I was trying to fish them into a certain direction because it's not someone who's their name or the fact that they died that gives you any hope. But when God promised you that I'll raise you up as I raise my son up, and then the son is actually raised from the dead, and you see other people in Scripture that actually were raised from the dead, eyewitnesses including Lazarus that we can read of, that gives me hope. When someone has this kind of hope, they're able to do things, are willing to do things they would otherwise not do. Here's where this comes in. Because when God promises, it's not like, well, then I kind of, I hope, and I use the word hope in a way that's not used in Scripture. I wish that's going to happen to me. Uh-uh. There is an, an expectation based on faith. That that's going to be the case. We can read Hebrews chapter 6 verses 13 through 20. Hebrews chapter 11 which we already read. I want to read Hebrews chapter 6. And, and I want you to see the kind of hope that is in someone that believes in the resurrection. And see if this is not the hope that you have or can have. Hebrews chapter 6. It says over here beginning... <clears throat> In verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham because he could not swear by anyone greater, he swore by himself. Saying, surely, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. So, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise... The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which, number one, it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Sure and steadfast. And which enters the presence behind the veil. What he's talking about is that heavenly reward. Where the forerunner has entered for us, Jesus that is, having become high priest forever according to the order 
of Melchizedek. And without getting into all the details, Melchizedek was and then he wasn't because the picture is as a shadow of Jesus Christ, he continues to live. That's the picture of the hope that we can have and the conviction that gives us consolation when someone dies or when we were to die. Knowing that we have this promise assured us. And this hope is so wonderful and so convicting. We can understand the words of the Apostle John when he wrote, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death. In other words, you got this first death, the physical death of this body. But the second death, when we're talking about judgment, has no power. You might physically die, but according to these people, that's it. That physical death is as far as it goes. Blessed is the man who death has no power over him, that second death. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And it goes on with the remainder of this beautiful um, passage in Revelation 20 and for that matter 21. So what does that mean then? What it means is that when you have this kind of hope, you're willing to do things that is crazy in the, people, in the eyes of people. For instance, the Apostle Paul. This is a summation of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you to think, what in the mind of Paul would ever have him choose to live differently when he had everything going for him as a Jewish teacher young man high up in the ranks a great reputation great standing of Paul this quotation then he decided to change his name from Saul as a Jew to Paul one who go out to the Gentiles join his enemies in other words the people that he was actually consenting to death he joins now what kind of crazy is that throw away his reputation Throw away his authority, throw away his wealth, his social standing, and every other thing that he had worked for his entire life in favor of traveling thousands of brutal miles. Think about that. I'm going to throw everything away that's been good for me, and I'm going to go travel the world so that I can get beat up. Willingly subjecting himself to lashings, beatings, the brink of death, stonings, shipwreck, starvation, dehydration, and years of imprisonment. How many of you are willing to do that? Brethren, every one of you should have raised your hand. That's the kind of conviction the resurrection should have in every single one of us. And I'm serious when we ought to have this kind of conviction, but because we live so comfortably in this country, Christianity looks more mythological, not real. You step out into the quote-unquote real world, get expand your bubble, and live as a disciple of Christ, and then we see the persecution. We see those who are truly living their faith, and it's not that it cannot be happening right here among us, and you may have already experienced that in, in your own world. But this is the kind of conviction that people are willing to go this length in their lives, to give up everything, because they believed in the promise of the resurrection. Well, the thing is, is there evidence in your life that you have this kind of conviction? Last night, um, 
I don't know how we got started on this, but Dusty and I were talking about um, mission work, and he had been to Honduras some time ago, apparently, and, and I was telling him going into the Amazon in Bogota, and I was giving him various scenarios in which our lives had been in jeopardy, whether it was riots that was going against the government, and we see riots coming here. I have to have pictures, and wondering, are we going to survive this? Riots in other situations, or, or one opportunity in Bogota, Colombia, to preach the gospel, knowing that we may be kidnapped. And I remember calling our elders in Georgia, saying, please pray. We have an open door for the gospel, but we know there's a risk involved. And I know this brother loves me so much. He said, Mitch, think about your wife and your children. And I said, why am I here? I love my wife and my children. I don't want to die. But I have a assurance that when I die, I'll live. And I remember saying, it's not for me that I'm worried about. It's the souls who are lost. They need saving. They may not agree or even believe what I have to share with them, but some of them may. Why do I leave this country if I don't believe what I teach in the pulpit? It's because of the hope of the resurrection that I'm able to do stuff that I would never do. I wouldn't even be here, brethren. I wouldn't be here if I didn't have this conviction of the resurrection. I wouldn't be preaching in this pulpit. But I certainly wouldn't even be here at church service. I'd live my life the way I want to. My way. Brethren, is there evidence in your life through the resurrection of Christ? Does, does it move you with genuine conviction? The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Now, let that sink in for a moment. Because he's writing to Christians who need to have this very conviction that you give your life over to the Lord and become a slave of him and not a slave of the flesh. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Your lives, brethren, should be, and I'm using this term very loosely, it should be, look very miraculous. That people look at you going, what a huge difference in your life. God must be working through you. And for those who have, are being in our 9 o'clock Bible study on the Holy Spirit, that was the gift, right? He was the gift. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive God's gift, His Spirit, and there should be a change in you. It should look so much so that people are going, well, no. It looks like the same person. I don't see any difference in that person. Why become a Christian? But when there is this change and this conviction about you, I'm not saying you have to be a Samson and, and do all kinds of miraculous things with, with your strength or that you have to be able to speak in tongues 
or that you have to be able to prophesy. I'm not talking about any of these things. I'm talking about the fruit, the evidence that you belong to Jesus Christ. It should manifest itself and that you're willing to do things you would otherwise never be willing to do because you belong to him. That's the conviction that the Apostle Paul had that can be, should be in every one of us. And all of that is because of Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with this. Jesus never wrote a single book or wrote a single song. And did you know that there are more songs and books written about him than any other person in this world, in world history? You stop and think about the influence that he had. He's born with humbled circumstances. We are told this morning that when Jesus was just about a month old and the parents presented him before the Lord as the firstborn, given over to God, it was a sacrifice for people who would not be able to have as much means. Humble circumstances, and he is later called the king of kings. Who does that happen to? And furthermore, he's just one man, and now there are people all over the four corners of this planet who are professing a belief in him. What kind of influence does a person have like that? That he could take you, and you're here this morning and not doing something else. The fact that you are here this morning is you are evidence of that influence. That's not simply because there was a guy named Jesus who walked the earth. Not simply because he was some pretty good teacher that we should follow his teachings. Not because he is some person that died because his death was to sacrifice himself for us. All of those are important, but that's not the reason. It's when he was victorious over death. Ephesians chapter 4. And Ephesians chapter 6. And Romans chapter 6. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so many other Bible passages we could be looking at. Because he was victorious over death, we have this hope. And it moves us to sing songs praising his name as we did this morning. To remember that death and necessarily implied that victory over death that gives us this hope. This is the reason right here, his resurrection. So I want to ask you, for those who are in Christ, those who have put on Christ, you, were, you died with him in the watery grave known as baptism. You were raised to walk in newness of life. Are your, is your life a testimony of the power of Christ's resurrection as we read of those who had great hope? If it's not, begin living in such a way as to manifest that genuine conviction that you have. If it is, keep on and encourage others to do the same. Encourage them. Hold their hands, if you will. Give them evidence of that conviction that motivates them, influences them. And friend, if you have not put on Christ, if you've not been buried with Him into His death, so that you can rise to walk in newness of life. Great opportunity. Great opportunity that you have.
why not take advantage of this hour? I'm, we're not just talking about some ceremony that you do and it's like, oh yeah, okay. This is, we're talking about life and death, rejoicing. And that's what we have. Brethren, remember how it says the angels rejoice over one lost soul that repents and turns to God? That's what we can have. And this would be the day for it. This is a day of life over death. You can have that right now. If you're here in your subject that call, we invite you to come right now as together we sing Christ Arose.